Hey everybody, this is Dan Wilson, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. I saw the Beatles when I was eight years old on Ed Sullivan. So. I was laying on a wooden floor looking at an old black and white zenith, and uh, there they were. And uh, I remember the first time I saw a picture of the Beatles, uh, it showed, you know, the drums with Ludwig on on them, right? And uh, I thought initially that Ringo's name was Ludwig because I didn't know anything about brand names and stuff like that yet, you know? Today's guests are the Boxmasters, an American rock band comprised of Grammy Award-winning recording engineer J.D. Andrew and Academy Award-winning actor Billy Bob Thornton. Formed in 2007, the Boxmasters have recorded a diverse catalog of music that touches on their shared love of the rock and roll of the 1960s. Listening to the Boxmasters, one can hear obvious odes to the Beatles, Birds, and Beach Boys, but also important to the Boxmasters are the Mothers of Invention, Chris Christopherson, John Prine, and Big Star. Since the formation of the band, several longtime friends have contributed to the sound, but the core of the Boxmasters has always been Andrew and Thornton. As primary songwriters, the sound of the Boxmasters has been in evolution as the duo constantly strive to find new inspiration, new sounds, and new means of expression. As a touring band, the Boxmasters have cultivated a rabid fan base across the United States and Canada, opening for the likes of ZZ Top, Steve Miller, George Thorogood, and Kid Rock. The Boxmasters have succeeded in winning over large audiences. Their touring highlights include appearances at Levon Helms' Midnight Ramble in Woodstock, New York, a performance at Ramble at the Ryman in 2008, and the Grand Ole Opry in 2015, another in a growing resume of must-play venues. Their latest album is entitled 69, with an ensuing tour that includes a stop at Monmouth University's own Pollock Theatre in June 2023. Welcome, Boxmasters. Thank you for being with me on release day. This is quite an honor. Well, we're we're honored. Yeah, we, we love it. And, uh, and it's just and it's also Cinco de Mayo. So it's a double holiday for us. That's right. It's a, a big one. I have not had my my Tex-Mex meal today yet, but I will. <laughs> yeah. um, 
So I, I, you know, we're everything Fab Four. Uh, I write a lot about the Beatles and have this podcast about the band. And so uh, one of our, our favorite questions is about um, uh, about about the Beatles and origin stories. And I'm curious about both of your Beatles origin stories. You know, where did it where did it all start for you? You know, what was the spark of energy uh, that brought you to their world? Well, do you want to field that one or me? Yours is a better origin story. <laughs> I'm going to want both, though. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I was, uh, I grew up in Arkansas, uh, around Hot Springs, Arkansas. And so um, anything we got, you know, from the, I mean, when the Beatles came out, anything we got from, you know, overseas, any news or those, you know, magazines that they would have and stuff, we were over the moon. I mean, it, it essentially, uh, made everybody of my era want to be in a band like the Beatles. So I always tell people that it it set the bar for all of us way too high. We we were going to try to succeed, obviously, and we were, and it probably helped us out as songwriters and musicians and everything else. But at the same time, the bar was set with a band that you knew you were never going to be. So you spend your whole life, you know, you know, reaching for this thing that's impossible. But I think in a lot of ways it helps you. But I I saw the Beatles when I was eight years old on Ed Sullivan. So I was laying on a wooden floor looking at an old black and white zenith. And uh, there they were. And uh, I remember the first time I saw a picture of the Beatles, uh, it showed, you know, the drums with Ludwig on, on them. Right. And uh I thought initially that Ringo's name was Ludwig because I didn't know anything about brand names and stuff like that yet, you know. So as an eight-year-old, I thought the drummer's name was Ludwig just for a few minutes until I read more. But um, anyway, it was there's not a real way to describe to people who who didn't grow up with the Beatles exactly how it felt. I mean, like the essence of 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 them and what it did to you. And, you know, it, but it made us all fans of not only the Beatles, but the whole British invasion. I mean, we would watch, uh, you know, now there's so much criticism and so many, uh, you know, whoever puts a record out, it's always like you got people in the Internet who don't like this one or do like that one and everything. And back then, we liked everybody who was on Ed Sullivan. I mean, <laughs> you know. I mean, it was Freddie and the Dreamers and the Kinks and Gary Lewis and the Playboys. We didn't care. You know, it was just that was that was the kind of rock and roll that informed the rest of our lives. And, uh, you know, at the time, we didn't realize that they were playing, you know, uh, Carl Perkins uh, songs and Chuck Berry and stuff and, and Buddy Holly and that that. You know, we were doing that, too, when we were, you know, 10 or 12 in our first bands. But we kind of sounded more like that did. But when the Beatles did it, uh, it just had its own sound. So it wasn't like, hey, let's sound like, you know, Chuck Berry. They tried, but they sounded like the Beatles, <laughs> you know. And uh, so, it, it, I mean, it literally invented a new kind of music for all of us And my first single uh, that I ever uh, bought with my own paws in Paula's record shop in Malvern, Arkansas, was I want to hold your hand. And, <laughs> what a gateway. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was just, uh, 
And to this day, a lot of people talk about the Beatles more uh, progressive stuff. And once they got into the Sgt. Pepper era or, or even Rubber Soul and Revolver, uh, because it was so innovative and ch- music was changing and, the, you know, and the Beach Boys, you know, had uh, pet sounds and all this. But I still in my top five Beatles songs would have to put, I want to hold your hand. I mean, I just think it's like a perfect pop song. Uh, I have to agree in all of the elements, the surf rock that, that George brought with, uh, you know, trying to get a West coast sound in there. What it's, and it's structured like a Broadway show tune. Right, uh, right. Just amazing stuff. Now, JD, what about you? And feel free if, if you're not sure the stories is good, just embellish. Yeah, no, that's what I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm going to try to do that because I mean, I know I look older than Billy, but I'm actually a few years younger. Um, so, <laughs> so you know, I wasn't there at the birth of the British invasion. So uh, I grew up in Kansas, and there was a show on our local radio called uh, Solid Gold Saturday Night. And it was just all songs from the 50s and 60s. And I loved that show. I was I recorded most of the shows I'd sit there and cut the commercials out and, and listen to cassettes of the shows that I recorded and certain nights would just be Beatles nights. And I remember telling one of my elementary school teachers, you know, how I, I got to stay up late on Saturday night because I was listening to the, you know, the Beatles be on there and I was taping it and I was so excited. And, you know, I, my dad loved the Beatles, my mom, you know, everybody, um, you know, that's just what we listened to. We listened to the oldies, you know, at that <laughs> point, you know, in the seventies. Um, and so I, you know, I just loved it. I didn't listen to anything current, you know, probably until, you know, I was in late high school. I just, you know, I love the beach boys. I love the Beatles, love credence. You know, those, those were the things I listened to for fun. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, once I met Billy and we really started, you know, diving deep in the sounds and, you know, the structures and chords and everything, you know, of, of the Beatles and all the other British invasion bands, you know, it's, it's just, it all kind of came back to me. It's like how much that music had influenced my life. You know, everything that I loved was kind of all there and, now, you know, with our band, we just get to do that. You know, we get to make the music we want and make it sound how we want. And the music that we love and we love the sound of is the music from the 60s. So I love it. And, it, you know, yeah. Billy, you mentioned that the Beatles are essentially the outlier, right? I remember you said something like that in Rolling Stone in the mid 90s. And it, it really caught my eye because I hadn't thought about it in that way that, you know, their level of commercial and critical acclaim is is unmatched. You know, it's almost a fool's errand to try to do that, but there's really no reason why you shouldn't, which is what I love teaching our students about today, is that they have all of this great music that can be inspirational and, well, hell, just wonderful to have all their lives. Um, did you guys, did you grow up in musical households? Kind of. I mean, my, my uncle was a country musician, my mother's brother. And I actually played drums with him some when I was in high school. But, you know, they were playing country music and I had, you know, hair halfway down my back. And, <laughs> you know, so they were playing VFW clubs and stuff. And so I was usually just trying to hide 
between the sets. <laughs> so I didn't get beat up with a beer bottle or something. But uh, yeah, it was, a, and my mother was a lover of music and she loved the Beatles. My dad was the only person I ever knew in my life who didn't, not, not only not like the Beatles, he didn't like music. I mean, literally. I mean, I mean I, I've never heard of that. He liked two songs. He liked Puff the Magic Dragon, and he liked uh, and he liked uh, Easter Parade. <laughs> you know, Don, you're Easter. I don't know why. I mean, he was a hot-headed little English basketball coach, and he, he just didn't like music. He thought Johnny Cash, the way most parents felt about the Beatles, their hair was too long and they were too, you know, made people go crazy and, you know, whatever. He didn't even like Johnny Cash. And you'd think a guy like him would like Johnny Cash, but he used to say he just bellers like a bull. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I had, I had the Beatles models. I had all the magazines, Dave Clark five versus the Beatles. I <laughs> had the beetle wig i had beetle puzzles just everything i mean i lived and breathed the beetles my whole life and this the difficult thing about being a beatles fan it's almost like chris farley on saturday out live when he had mccartney on there and you know he said remember when you were in the beatles you know and uh because anything you say about the beatles has has been said before and makes you sound like I mean, you know, if you said something like my favorite artist of all time was Lonnie Johnson, the blues singer, <laughs> they will go, wow, you must be really smart. You know, but if you go, who's your favorite band? Oh, I really like the Beatles. <laughs> you know, that it's like, you know, and you can't say even what I've said. I, I, I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. It changed my life. It's, you know, but the, but it's true. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just true. And then, but you can't say it and sound like you're some kind of groundbreaking interview. <laughs> what about you, JD? What was the, did, was that? So it sounds like the household was supportive of your, your addictions. Well, they ever, you know, my dad, he, you know, I think he was a, you know, he wanted to be a musician. He, he's, he started playing guitar, um, Later in life, you know, in his 30s, at some point, he started taking lessons and he was kind of uh, working on it a little bit until I stole his guitar. Um, <laughs> but we listened to the radio constantly. I remember we had a pickup truck because, you know, we grew up on a farm and so we'd have to go feed the cattle at night and, you know, the whole family would go and we didn't have a radio in the truck, but we would all sing songs as a family just driving down the road. My dad loved Alabama, so we'd sing a lot of Alabama songs. Um, but yeah, I mean, my dad had played trumpet in high school band. And so, you know, as soon as I was able to, you know, I got past his trumpet. And my school that I went to was a very musical school from, you know, the time I got there in second grade. You know, the wife of the, the, the music teachers were a husband and wife duo. So the wife did elementary school and the husband did um, junior high and high school. And the music teacher was also the head of the local stagehands union. And so when I got old enough, when I was 14 or 15, he would start bringing us in to work at concerts and, you know, unload trucks and, you know, pole wires and things like that at the uh, arena that was in town. So 
everything, you know, it's like it wasn't a performing arts school, but almost all of our school was in the the choir and the band. And it was, uh, you know, a very musical kind of place. It was you know, it, without really intended to be. And I think, you know, I just soaked all that in and I just loved setting up the speakers for a junior high dance, <laughs> setting up the, you know, the cassette player and the, you know, however we set it up in those days, but, you know, getting the big speakers out. I, I thought that was so cool. And so it's just, uh, you know, everything that we, you know, did growing up, it's like, well, it's, I found out that you can actually, you know, do that for a living. You know, it's like you can carry around big speakers and you can uh, plug in wires and things like that. And, and you can play music for people. And sometimes you get paid for it. <laughs> you mean like being a roadie, which I understand. Have you both been roadies or just you, Billy? Oh, we've both. Yeah, been, we've both been both yeah. been roadies. So we've been chewed out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so we try to we try to be really nice to our guys, you know, because we remember when we were on the other side of it, you know. Yeah, we we both sound guys, you know. Yeah. We both brand front of house for various uh, various acts at various times in our youth. It's pretty wild that, uh, you know, yeah, we are on the other side. And honestly, yeah, we do kind of baby our crews a bit more probably than a lot of artists do out there. But, you know, we have been on that side. You know, one of the things that my students love to hear about, because they they discover the Beatles very differently than we do. They go out and they they hear, I think they discover them in the same way in the sense that, you know, they'll hear a song and think, my God, where has that been all my life? And then they'll head to whatever their favorite streamer is and they can consume it, you know, uh, whole. And one of the things we talk a lot about in class is what that whole means, right? And the thing that keeps me coming back is the way you start with Love Me Do and you end with, you know, the Abbey Road medley, essentially. There is no other ride like that in the history of art. You know, Shakespeare, as great as Shakespeare is, he's up and down, right? James Joyce doesn't do that. Picasso didn't right. you know, didn't have that level of upward momentum. What was it like, Billy, to experience that as that happened? Well, you know, it. Uh, every time a new Beatles record came out, it was exciting, of course. But then we sort of grew with the records. I mean, we with with each year and, and with them changing, we were also changing. And, you know, I wasn't old enough, uh, you know, I, from, you know, 64 to, uh, you know, like 69 there. I mean, I only went to like, what is that, 13, 14, 14 years old or something. Yeah. So, so it wasn't like I was uh, 17 or 18 and was, you know, already into acid or, or anything. You know? <laughs> so, so it's, I didn't experience it that way. My only experience with it was the music and the style. So I would, you know, I would see the styles changing. And uh, I, I think probably when I really noticed that, Oh wow, these guys—they do something other than "She Loves You." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it was when uh, when I heard uh, uh, like uh, you know the Rubber Soul album, and, and 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 like everybody else did, and it was like, hang on a second, this is really 
this is really good. It still sounds like that, but kind of not. What is it? Because we weren't sure. We weren't old enough to know, you know? And you grow up, and it's kind of like, you know what it was like with the Beatles finding out who they became, you know, or who they changed to as the years went on? Um. it was like, you know, when you're growing up in a small town like I did, and then you, when you get older and you're having a dinner with your mom and uh, you say, hey, how's Dr. Smith or whatever? And she goes, well, you know, he had an affair with your your aunt so-and-so, and then, they, you know, and he's actually your uncle or what? I, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so when you start hearing that these guys were like experimenting with acid and this guy was mean to that guy and all this stuff. You know, we just experienced the music because yeah. we, you know, we, we didn't know all those things about them. So you, you hear this stuff in retrospect, but yeah, there was no Beatles TMZ. Yeah, they're, they're exactly. The dirt. <laughs> yeah. So we just, we saw that. What was interesting to me though, was I saw the Rolling Stones are supposed to be the bad boys and they're doing like street fighting man and all these different things like that. And, you know, I'm I'm thinking street fighting, man. I think John Lennon can take them all on because I saw, I saw pictures of the Beatles when they were in the leather jackets and the things. And you start to read stories about the way those guys were. Well, these are working class guys or lower middle class in like Ringo grew up in the dingle over there, you know? And so yeah, that, that name says it all right. The dingle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but one way or the other, you find out that the Beatles are cleaned up by Brian Epstein and had, and to wear these suits and the Rolling Stones try to look like bad boys and play more bluesy rock stuff, you know? And in fact, they were the more, middle to upper middle class guys in London there. <laughs> it was just always interesting to me that the Beatles had this image of being the suit guys who were polite boys and Ed Sullivan to say, well, come on lads and all this kind of thing. And then the Rolling Stones are on there and it's like the devil was on TV. Well, it was really, I mean, there were things that were the other way around. You know what I mean? We'll be back with more from the box masters after these messages. You're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. J.D., you discovered them uh, after the breakup, right? Like myself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, totally. I wasn't even, I wasn't born until after they were broken up. Um, But, yeah, I remember, you know, I loved, when I was young, I loved the early stuff, you know, up until, you know, up until Rubber Soul. That's kind of how I got it. But, you know, and also, like, Tomorrow Never Knows and other songs from the White Album, they they scared me. You know, I, I, they were they were just too too much for me at that point. You know, when I was young, I it was too adventurous and it just really made me feel uncomfortable. You know, and it wasn't till later on that I you know could sit down and listen to it and be like, oh okay, here's what they're doing. That's you know really neat. But you know, you start playing background or backwards vocals and guitars to you know an eight nine year old and it the first time you hear it it's terrifying you know it's so you know it's uh you know thinking back on it it's just like wow that you know it was really profound you know when i when i found those things because i i really i loved the the songs that i could sing and you know act like i was playing along with and 
you know, the, the chipmunks didn't do any covers of later <laughs> songs, you know, because there was that mop top chipmunks record that I wore out and, you know, I, I loved all, you know, I loved their versions. I love the Beatles versions and, but it was, you know, really impactful to me. But once you get past that era, you know, it, it took me several years, you know, later on to really, you know, appreciate it. And well, it's a, it's a legitimate journey, right? I mean, yeah, the chipmunks do revolution nine. Um, <laughs> you know what? That would actually be more terrifying than would that exists in revolution nine. I, yeah. I got the light album when I was 11. So it would have been 1977. My, my aunt Molly got it for me and I took it upstairs to listen to it. And I'd been a mostly an early Beatles guy uh, until that point. And uh, I remember playing it and I played glass onion and of course, I know what it means now, but it said dovetail joint. And I thought, uh-oh, my dad's going to hear this, and I'm going to get in so much trouble. And I, I think I literally put it away, and I thought, I am not ready for this album yet. I've got to wait a little longer. Maybe I need to go spend more time with Help and Rubber Soul uh, just to cleanse myself a little bit. Of course, those were incredible weed albums, as we know now, but... Um, you know, I, I, I've been listening in preparation for today to the, you know, you guys have 13 albums now. And um, no I've, idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've been really struck by the essential ingredient to me. While I, I love, uh, obviously, the, the British invasion sounds and, and, and your, your nods to the Beatles and others. Um, it has what another of our previous guests, uh, Steve Van Zandt said you got to have the only essential ingredient is energy and every one of those songs whether it's a slow uh number or you know something upbeat and with with a faster tempo every one of your songs has energy i wonder if you could tell tell us a little bit about the composition of those you know how do you how do you put those ideas together well i mean you know like lyrically uh, just you know, there's many stories to be told and, and uh, many things to be said. And I was fortunate to grow up in a time where there was great poetry in songwriting, you know. And so uh, I'm kind of a stickler for that. You know, <laughs> I was just telling a guy the other day that if uh, well, I was telling J.D. too, I said, you know, you you have uh, it, I was trying to write some stuff with a, a guy one time, not for my project or anything and i said you know in nashville they can rhyme love with hot buttered popcorn and it's like i, I try to stay away from that <laughs> you know but one of the things that we got from specifically the beatles is they didn't always do a typical song structure i mean sometimes they just had verse chorus verse chorus but not always i mean and sometimes their songs would start with the chorus then they would go into their middle eight and they'd come back to the chorus. And then you have a song like Nowhere Man, which is, it's the two sections repeated, two different sections repeated, I think three times, whatever it is. And so we do stuff like that. And in terms of the energy, we honestly play, uh, JD and I make the records by ourselves. I mean, it's just the two of us. So we have to sound live with two guys. And so we start out by playing guitar and, and a scratch vocal and drums. So it's like, you know, that. And 
you have to create that energy with the drums before the song's even done. So it kind of starts <laughs> with it. And uh, we're just naturally influenced by, you know, like those guys, like the Kinks are a big influence on us, you know. And so I think we just, in other words, there's no answer for it. We, well, we just kind of sound that way. I mean, one of, I mean, one of the, the ways, I, you know, that we keep it, feeling alive, you know, and has, you know, energy and hopefully dynamics is we start the song at the beginning and we go to the end. So, you know, when, when Billy's playing the drums, when I'm anything that I'm playing, you start at the beginning and you go to the end. So hopefully it'll have, you know, you'll, you'll start out, you know, the intro might be kind of strong. Then you bring it down for the verse. Then you bring it back up for the chorus maybe bring it up a little bit more for the bridge. And then the outro, you give it everything you got, you know, so, you know, we're going along, you know, what is the song, you know, we're, we're playing the song and uh, you know, I think that people can get lost in, you know, who I got this cool, you know, little beat, uh, you know, or, you know, a loop or something that you're just playing that kind of stays the same the whole way. So you don't change. So if you're just doing that, you know, it, it just starts at one level and goes, you know, all the way to the end at that same level. And I think that's just one way that we try to make our songs just feel alive is start at the beginning. All right. Where's the count off? Okay, great. One, two, three, four, go play it till the end. You know, maybe if you stop, you know, you mess up, maybe you pick up, maybe you just go back to the beginning and start again. That which is most of the time what we do. You know, Billy sings the song. We don't just start and it's like, okay, we're gonna do the verses, you know, and sing it. No, it's like we start at the beginning. He listens to the whole intro, you know, it's like then the song starts, he sa starts singing the verses. It's it's from top to bottom, you it's, know, it's the so whole it's thing. A, a two a two-man full band, <laughs> you yeah. know. So well, then it's even more remarkable that you you maintain that energy. And like I said, whether it's Fast or slow, it doesn't matter. I mean, I was listening just uh, a little while back today to let let the bleeding pray, right? And it has that low rumble. There's that kind of low, almost a little roar that exists, and the energy is coming from that. You know, it's pulsing, and obviously, it's talking about an important subject. But it, uh, you know, it, it it's just interesting how many different ways you create that energy. Was that song produced by Jeff Emmerich? Yeah, that's yeah, that was on the Jeff Emmerich album. Yeah. What was it like working with him? Uh, it was, I mean, it was astounding. I, we, uh, we had known Jeff for a number of years and he told us that he was a big fan of, of our music. And, and we were like, wow, that's amazing. He said, I'd love to produce something on you someday. And it finally worked out to where that, that happened. It was, you know, just by chance that, him seeing a studio manager that we know and it all kind of came together. And um, we, I mean, here we were working with him and, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to just concentrate on what you're doing when what you really want to do is say, so, Hey, did, did Yoko really eat George's cookies? How pissed did he get? You know, I mean, it's like whatever. And then he, and he was very willing to tell us those stories. But he was very unwilling to show us 
exactly what he was doing with those compressors. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> and so, but he Cause, was because that because cool. those songs, you know, we <coughs> the first one he did. What was, what was the first one? Um, uh, I want to go where you go. Yeah. So I think uh, that was the first song he mixed, right? The first song he mixed was called "I Want to Go Where You Go." And listen to the vocal on this song, "I Want to Go Where You Go," and you will literally hear the treatment that he did to John Lennon's vocal. It's like just for a second. It's like, wow, I sound as close to John Lennon as I ever will. It's not that yeah. close, but it's like, but you know, he did what he did to him. And, and so then we us. would ask him, it's like, or I, you know, I asked him, it's like, Jeff, what did you do to Billy's voice to make him sound like that? And he's like, I'm not telling you, <laughs> you, know, it's, and it, it, you know, it's like, okay, I accepted it. Cause you know, there's just some trade secrets that you just want to kind of keep under your vest, you know, and, keep to yourself. And it's like, I get it. But then, you know, I went to uh, Jeff's wake after he passed or his, his, uh, you memorial. know, memorial at, at Capitol studios. And, you know, there was just line, you know, guy after guy of, you know, more heroes of mine of, you know, recording engineers and producers and everyone would be like, Oh, and Jeff was so forthcoming with all of his secrets and, you know, all his tricks and everything like that. And I'm standing in the back just going, that son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> he just, <laughs> he kept it all a secret from us, but, uh, you know, it, it really was a treat, you know, and, and he really, I mean, he, his whole formative years of growing up was with the Beatles that, whole, you know, from the time he was 16, you know, he was with the Beatles all his whole life. And so everything, he just couldn't help it. You know, he's like, Oh yeah, we were out at Paul's farm and, you know, doing this and, you know, something or other. And it's, you know, just every story was kind of, you know, casually about the Beatles. <laughs> and it was just like unbelievable. You know, he just couldn't, you know, just sat there and just was like, you were there, man. It's yeah. like, how, how the heck? <laughs> yeah, he, he produced like a Nazareth record or something like that, but he didn't talk about them. <laughs> yeah. Well, he didn't. Yeah. He, or, you know, working with America, you yeah, know, other America, other yeah. heroes and friends of ours. And yeah. um, last conversation with him uh, would have been not too many months before that. And uh, I asked him about just the variety of people he had been working with. And I said, what do you think it is that that keeps him coming back? And he said, well, Ken, it's because when they come to me and I record it, I can make it sound like a record. <laughs> and then when they leave, they're happy because they they sound like a record, and and I liked that a lot. So maybe that's why he was holding back from you, JD. He wouldn't give you the you know the goods. Um, you know, speaking of the new record, sixty nine, which I love the concept of thinking about yourselves and how what a record from nineteen sixty nine with the box masters would sound like. Um, I just love this record, and the song that I can't uh, stop listening to is a big sunshine. Oh yeah, yeah. That's I love it. Um, can you give me some more background on that? It's just it. In fact, frankly, it it may be the most Beatlesque of the bunch, in the sense that it's about an impression more than a pure story, right? Sure. You know, Strawberry Fields Forever is, and I'm telling you guys this, you know this, doesn't tell you a story. It's an impression, right? It it's right. it's like painting, and I felt that way when I listened to A Big Sunshine. I think that might have been the first song we recorded for this record, wasn't it? I think it was because wow, it, it kind of started out in another session, and then we started writing more songs. I mean, because uh, 
I think it was, I don't it was know. pretty close. But it might have been the first one. I'm, we I'm pretty sure because so the title comes from, I think my youngest son, uh, my wife took a picture with her and, and the boys or something, and the son was behind her. And so it's like really kind of, you know, the sun was just like directly behind him. And my son said it was a big sunshine. And, and so I told Billy that, and, you know, you know, I, I always trust that, you know, if I give Billy a title or say something sounds like a title of a song that he'll take it and, you know, write stuff, you know, that I couldn't possibly, you know, even fathom. But so, you know, he came up with all the lyrics, I believe, first and then we then we put music to it and you know we had uh we had just got this studio that we're sitting in this is our new studio pepper tree hill um and uh we had just kind of moved in and so like the there was still a crew of people like wiring up the console and and you know fixing things and putting stuff in and and all that. And so we were kind of stuck out in the live room, you know, Billy's drums were set up and we had a few pieces of gear sitting out there and kind of things waiting to get put away, but we had songs written and we wanted to start recording. And so, you know, we did, uh, the first thing we did was, um, you know, there's a new Ian Hunter record that just came out a few weeks ago. Ian was on our show a few weeks ago and we, we talked about it. Yeah. And so, you know, the first thing we did was um, stuff for the, the Ian Hunter record that we uh, were thankfully asked to be a part of. And so then after that, it's like, we, Billy's like, we got songs, got a studio. It's not put together, but let's, you know, figure out, you know, let's just start recording. So we just started putting down kind of work tapes and things like that. And we started doing some tracks and I, I'm, Chestnut Eyes and A Big Sunshine were two songs that you were out of town yeah. And it's like, we got them all recorded all the way, but they needed like lead guitars and, you know, some things. And so Billy went out of town to work for something. And I sat in here and, and you know, played slide guitar for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> um, you know, that just felt like the thing to do. And uh, yeah, it's like, you know, we've recorded already in this studio, you know, it's only been a year and a half or so, and we've already made five records, four or five records, I think it is. And so, you know, that's, you know, several, it's, you know, a hundred songs or so. And uh, it's we hard to stop. even remember, you know, which yeah. one was, you know, like, what did we do on that? <laughs> well, I remember, I remember on Big Sunshine, just walking around the house, usually anytime I come up with a melody for a song, I, I just sort of is natural to sing it that way. And I remember when JD gave me the title and told me the story of his son uh, <laughs> walking around singing that melody for the chorus part, you know, the big sunshine part. We started there and then we figured out all the spookier stuff later. And then, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, yeah, it was, that's great that you that you respond to that song because you know it's oh yeah you, usually people will go straight for the one that sounds kind of like a hit <laughs> or yeah. whatever and uh, but we've always loved that song. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm that audience. I uh, I I get asked and interviewed a lot about what are my favorite Beatles songs, and 
you know, if I'm telling the truth, it's, it's happiness is a warm gun. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a staggering achievement, right? That song. I, I'm, I can't believe it exists in a lot of ways. And, and I, I feel really strongly about that new cut by you guys. It's great. So did you have any, uh, did you have any uh, Beatles songs that weren't really ones that were very popular or played on the TV shows or the radio that just because you happen to have it, it, you know, like uh, my, I had a 45 of there's a place and, and, but it was on some kind of yellow label. And I don't even remember what it was now, but it was, it wasn't capital and it wasn't like EMI or, I mean, Parlophone. Was, was that a Swan, uh, the yellow label? I, I think that, or Tolly or one of those guys. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't remember what the label was, but I remember it was yellow and, Kind of looked like the epic yellow label, but you know uh, that type of thing. But I just had that single of "There's a Place," and to this day, I love that song simply because I guess it's nostalgic for me. Because you know we were pretty poor, and I didn't get my hands on many records, you know. And I just had that forty-five, and I played it to death. And I think <laughs> "There's a Place" lasts what like a minute and ten seconds or something. <laughs> it's not two minutes. I do have one like that, and it was because, and, and this may have been happened to you too, JD. It was, uh, I remember when the Beatles' love songs came out. Remember with the fake, it had a fake leather look to it. It was, um, it was uh, one of the compilations that Capitol was showering on us in the in the nineteen seventies. And I remember getting it and thinking, "Damn it, I have all this stuff, you know. I already have this album, but I didn't have I'll Be Back." And that song, I I became, I still am. I, I, I was speaking about it just last week to an audience back in PA. That song uh, is just magic to me. Um, the off-rhythm guitar playing, you know, John's vocal. Uh, the fact that, you know, it's, it's a song about sadness, right? It's love that's not going to happen. This isn't She Loves You. Right. It just I remember being struck by that and uh, and then not feeling so bad that I had love songs after all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they went they went from like pure poppy love songs to banging people in the head with a hammer. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie Al Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. <laughs>